I think that was the cutest Leviathan we've ever seen. <laughs> it's nice to be back and to see all your faces. Um, the retreat was really nice and, you know, it was our first one in three years and um, I was worried that it was going to be raining and we were going to be stuck inside, you know, with 39 adults and 11 children all weekend, but... The sun came out, um, and we were able to explore Queenscliff, which was a lovely little town. Um, if you've never been, highly recommend it. I, on Saturday afternoon, there's an observatory tower where you can take the lift or you can go up the stairs, and it just has 360 degrees view of Queenscliff, and it was beautiful. Um, and then we, like, trekked down and went to the Black Lighthouse, which is basically an unpainted lighthouse made of black stone. Um, apparently it's the only one in the southern hemisphere. There's apparently only three in the whole world. And so we're like, all right, we're going to go see this lighthouse. And then we got there. It was very anticlimactic because you can't get in or near. It's like there's a fence around it. We're like, all right, let's go back. <laughs> but it was nice to uh, walk and get to see pretty much that walk. We, we went around like half of the island because it's a very, very small um, uh, peninsula, I should say, not island, um, but it was it was really nice. It's been a busy time, but a fun time as well, because before the retreat, the weekend before, um, some of us got to go see Come From Away, um, a musical that's, that was is playing. I think they're finishing up this weekend at the Comedy Theater. And I'd taken the tram from, from uh, my home to going to the city, and there was an altercation between a couple of men on the tram where they were yelling obscenities at each other and then throwing punches and their bodies were slamming against other passengers and we were all, the rest of us were like squished on one side trying to escape what was happening and people were like pushing the emergency stop button but the tram driver just kept going. <laughs> um, so by the time I got to the comedy theater, it was so nice to watch um, a, you know, a musical based on a true story about kindness and hospitality, and it did my heart good and restored my faith in humanity, and I laughed and I cried and I really enjoyed um, watching it with, with some of you. But there were a few moments during the musical when I flinched a little and I wondered, is anyone wondering why in the world did I choose this as a church social? Um, because there were a few moments during the musical that, that you know, were not exactly espousing Christian values. For example, um, the name of Jesus was used a few times in the as an expletive. And there are a few other things that happened. And, of course, in those moments, there was a comedic scene. And so, you know, the whole theater laughed. And I caught myself feeling con conflicted, right, um, enjoying what this story represented, what this musical was about, but then wincing a little bit inside as, as those moments came up. And the truth is we hear God's name being used in vain all the time. Unless you are a hermit, um, we have all, you know, been around that culture, um, especially the Aussie culture, right? There's a lot of swearing that happens all the time. Um, and, you know, for me, I, I grew up in a public school my whole life, from kindergarten to my master's degree, and so um, I'm used to hearing a lot of swearing. And most of my friends growing up weren't Christian. In fact, I only have one Christian friend and I remember um, she was in my seventh grade, because I moved school like five times growing up. And in seventh grade, her name was Nicole, and she was a very devout Christian. And um, one day, there was a boy in class who used to say, 
oh my god, a lot. And he was saying it, you know, like he would drop his pencil. Oh my god, you know, every every other word, uh, every other sentence, I should say. And Nicole turned to him, and she said, "You're offending me. Please stop saying that and using、uh, God's name in vain." And I remember being really startled by this. And of course, he was very startled, and he looked at her like she was a space alien. And to his credit, he actually tried to not say this much around her, which I thought was very good of him. And I remembered that moment、um, and that memory as I was—I've been thinking in the past few weeks about what it means to be part of our culture, to live in the culture that we're in, to live in this world. What does it mean to navigate our Christian values、um, and interacting with other people? How do we do that? How do we do that? Is it okay to ask people to accommodate to our beliefs? Is it okay if people's practices are restricting our freedom to practice our beliefs? What if your workplace has a toxic culture? When do you speak up? When do you stay silent? When do we defend our rights? When do we defend the rights of others? How do we navigate our allegiance to Christ with our engagement with culture? Should we just shelter ourselves and close our eyes and block our ears from anything that that、um, clashes with our Christian values? Or on the other hand, should we just go with the flow and blend in so that nobody knows that we're Christian? Is Christianity a culture of its own that we adopt when we decide to follow Jesus? And is this culture a whole new culture, or is it an, or is it a composite culture of a little bit of our own culture, the culture of the person who introduced Christianity to us? What does it mean to be a Christian? And how do we share Jesus with those around us without imposing our own culture? These are complex questions. And I'm not here to give you answers, but rather I'd like to explore some principles that might help us as we think about and wrestle with these questions. First, let's define culture. There are many ways to define culture, depending on whether you're a sociologist, a culture anthropologist, philosopher, etc. But today, for the sake of simplicity, when I refer to culture, I'm talking about a way of life of a people group that has to do with shared patterns of behavior. Shared interaction, beliefs, values, and language. Most of us belong to many cultures. You've got your family culture, the one that you were born into. You've got the culture of where you grew up, and there's a lot of subcultures that are very specific to neighborhoods and suburbs. You have your corporate culture of your workplace or or profession, and of course the culture of your church, global or local, and perhaps even the culture of your generation. For example, I was born in Korea, and so even though I immigrated to the U.S. when I was eight with my family, I still do certain things like taking my shoes off when I enter—not just even my own house, but anyone else's house. It's automatic for me to just take my shoes off, and and occasionally I cook Korean food. But because and and I do speak Korean, but because、um, I spent like second grade up until you know.、Um, Master's degree in the U.S. Most of my thinking and and most of my kind of I guess culture is American. And so the other day someone was like, "Hey, Happy Korean Thanksgiving Day!" And I was like, "Is it? <laughs> like I have no idea." Because and and I, I'm so bad at、um, you know trans 
transferring my culture and transmitting my culture to my children that one of Micah's friends was like, hey, look at this. I drew this for you. And Micah's like, what is it? She's like, it's the Korean flag. <laughs> I'm like, sorry, Micah. <laughs> that is the Korean flag. Um, obviously, I have an American accent. And even growing up in the U.S., it wasn't just an American culture. I had a Korean-American culture, an, Im- an immigrant culture that became a part of who I was. And then I was, I've been here in Australia for 10 years. And so I'm part Aussie, or at least part Melbourneian, right? Not only in citizenship, but in culture. And so now I like having afternoon tea. I have a footy team. Don't ask me which one, because I don't be persecuted. And I carry an umbrella and a jumper and thongs in my boot, because you just don't, don't know what kind of weather you're going to get, right? And so I've... I am this composite of all these cultures, and I'm a woman, and I'm a pastor, and I'm a mom, and there are cultures for each of those, which come with their own norms and expectations and boundaries. And sometimes I belong, and sometimes I'm challenged, and sometimes those, those worlds collide and, and, and clash or overlap, and we have to answer some tough questions. Sometimes... It's, it's little things. For example, this Monday is Halloween. And I thought I left that behind when I moved from America to here. But sadly, it's taken root here in Australia. <laughs> and uh, for many years, we didn't have to deal with it. Nobody came to our door. We never decorated. It just wasn't something we celebrated. And I definitely didn't grow up celebrating it in my family. You know, my parents didn't like the idea of it. Um, one, because, you know, the whole vampire ghost thing, they don't believe in. But two, the idea of giving children unlimited sugar was just, they were like, what? <laughs> so we didn't grow up doing it. Roy and I definitely uh, haven't done it. But then this year, one of Joshi's friends invited Joshi to go trick-or-treating with them. So all of a sudden, Roy and I had to sit down and have a discussion. What do we do? Do we say no because we don't support the concept of Halloween? Do we say yes because it's a bunch of six-year-olds going to get lollies in a neighborhood at 5 o'clock? What would Jesus do? Jesus lived a very unique life. On the one hand, he conformed perfectly to the will of God. He embodied in word, action, and attitude the principles of God. But he broke so many cultural norms and practices to do so. For example, he broke the gender barriers of his day by teaching women, discipling them, talking with them one-on-one, which was forbidden, and commissioning them to be his messengers. He allowed even uh, uh, one particular woman, a prostitute, to touch his feet, put her hair over, uh, to wash his feet with, with her tears. He broke ethnic barriers, healing and ministering to people of all backgrounds, the Syrophoenician woman, the Roman centurion, the madman in Gadara. Jesus broke socioeconomic barriers, eating with prostitutes and tax collectors, calling fishermen to be his disciples commending a poor widow who put two tiny coins in the offering box. He broke age barriers, valuing little children who wanted to be near Jesus, taking them in his arms and blessing them, as well as healing an old man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. He broke religious laws of his time. He touched ritually unclean people. He healed the disabled on the Sabbath, and he defended a woman caught in adultery. You see, the religious leaders and the, and the social elite 
um, cultural elites of his day were not happy with Jesus breaking these boundaries that they had worked so hard to establish and maintain. And they were so threatened by him that they killed him. And they persecuted all who followed Jesus' example of countercultural faithfulness to God and faithfulness to his mission to seek and save the lost. Jesus anticipated this clash between culture and spirit-led living in his prayer for his disciples in John 17. He knew that he was about to die. And, you know, throughout the Bible it says that Jesus would go in and pray, but it doesn't always tell us what he prayed about. But here we have recorded Jesus' prayer for his people. In John chapter 17, verse 14, Jesus says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Jesus understood that there would be hostility. He knew that his kingdom and his kingdom principles would not be embraced by those in the world at all times. He knew that it would not be easy to navigate living in this world as dual citizens of this culture and God's kingdom. Then he goes on to say in John 17 verses 15 to 19, My prayer is not that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Let's unpack this a little bit to find the principles that will help guide us as we navigate what, how we live this life. Um, so first, Jesus says, the world is not the enemy, the evil one is. And this is such a very significant distinction. Because a lot of Christians, I think, see people as the enemy, right? Those outside the church, avoid them, judge them. But Jesus is saying, they're not the enemy, right? The evil one is the enemy. And all of us, right, we're all children of God who are all struggling in the battle between good and evil. Secondly, while we live in the world, we do not belong to the world. We belong to God and his kingdom. And this means we are going to be different from others. We are going to have different priorities and values and lifestyles. We are going to be unique. And he says that we become unique, we become set apart or sanctified by God's word, which is God's truth. And this truth sets us free from the path of culture that isn't always towards good. It sets us free from the path of self-indulgence, self-delusion, and self-destruction, and gives us a new purpose and a new perspective. So we're not different for different sake. We're different because God gives us a new identity. In one of my favorite children's stories by Max Lucado called You Are Special, there's a wooden village of wooden people called Wemmicks. And in this wooden village, Wemmicks go around giving dots or stars. If you look pretty, if you are accomplished, if you're talented, Wemmicks would come and give you a golden star and it would stick. But if you messed up, if you seem foolish, right, or you've got some chip on, on your wood, and you don't look that great, you can't balance well, they would come and put a great dot on you. And Punchinella was one of those who got lots of gray dots. 
He tried so hard to get a golden star, but every time he tried, he would fail, and they would come and put more gray dots on him. And then he would try to explain what he was trying to do, but the words wouldn't come out quite right, and they would come and put more gray dots on him. And then some people gave him gray dots just because he had so many gray dots. He didn't like going outside. He thought to himself, I am not a good wimmick. And Punchinello was very sad. Then one day Punchinello met someone, a wemmick who had no stars and no dots. Her name was Lucia. And whenever people tried to stick a star or a dot on her, they would fall off. And Punchinello looked at her and said, I want to be like that. I don't want to have stars or dots. Well, mainly he's, he's thinking, I don't want these dots. And so he went up to her and he asked her, how come you don't have anyone's marks? And Lucia said, I go every day to spend time with Eli, the woodcarver. I sit in the workshop with him. Why don't you come along with me? And so curious, Punchinella goes to see Eli. And Eli is happy to see Punchinello. And he says, oh, Punchinello, I see you've got a lot of gray dots and you've been through a lot. And he comforts him and he talks to him and he says, what they think doesn't matter. All that matters is what I think. And I think you're pretty special because you're mine. That's why you matter to me. And Punchinello scratches his head. And he says, I don't understand. And Eli smiles and says, that's all right. Come back tomorrow and spend time with me. Remember, you are special because I made you. And I don't make mistakes. As Punchinello leaves, he thinks, I think he really means that. And as he has that thought, a gray dot falls off. You see, when we accept God's word as truth, the truth sets us free. It sets us free from the trappings and the false ideas of what our culture, our family, our society expects of us and thinks of us. And we are free to discover our identity in Christ, an identity that, that cannot be taken away or altered or, or um, diminished by any culture, by anybody. And when Jesus sends us then into the world, he wants us to bring that freedom, that truth, that healing to others. The church and the individual Christians are Jesus' body on earth now, reconciling people to God, just as Lucia did. It's not a coincidence that Lucia, um, the wimic who brought Punchinella to Eli, her name in Latin means light. When we meet Jesus and experience the freedom, the healing, and peace he brings, and when we live out Christ's upside-down, inside-out love and justice and mercy, it disrupts the cycle of patterns in our culture so that our homes, our workplaces, and our communities are not the same because we're in it. I believe that's what Jesus implied when he said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underneath, underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people uh, light a lamp and put it under a bowl. 
Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In the ancient world, salt was a precious commodity. On the one hand, it was used to preserve things, right? So they salted meat and fish so that it would last longer. Of course, as it is today, it was used to enhance flavor. But it was also used in ancient times as a fertilizer. They would put a little bit of salt in the ground to help the field um, produce more crop. Regardless of which aspect Jesus was referring to, the metaphor that he uses of Jesus' disciples being salt of the earth suggests that we have an important role to play in the welfare of our world. And that if we lose our saltiness, or if we're just like everybody else, we actually don't have anything to offer to the world. Similarly, hidden light doesn't help anybody. Light has to illumine and shine in order for it to be useful. We are meant to bless the world with our Christ-like countercultural attitudes and choices. In Matthews chapter 5 and 5 to 7, Jesus describes what that looks like including, he, he goes through it uh, quite a bit, but here's a, a one example where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, Jesus' contemporary culture was saying, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? Be good to your own, but snub the rest. Be kind to those that you agree with politically, socially, culturally, but forget about those you disagree with or dislike. But then Jesus comes and says, that's what everyone is doing. But I want you to be different. I want you to love your enemies and pray for the people who make your life difficult. And when Jesus says, love your enemies, he uses the Greek word agape, which is the Greek word of love that talks about God's love for us. It's that unconditional, enduring, faithful love, regardless of our actions. And Jesus is saying, I want you to love all people like that. Just as he brings the sunshine and the rain on the evil and the good, he wants us to show kindness and respect to all people, regardless of who they are and what they've done to us. The command at the end to be perfect is a challenging one. I don't know if you've ever read that before and thought, how is that even possible? But when you look at the Greek tense of that verb, It's in the future tense. In other words, Jesus is giving us a promise, a goal to be like him, which one day will be fulfilled. For me, probably when the new heaven and new earth is established. But the promise is one day we will be mature. One day we will be Christ-like. One day we will be perfect the way that God calls us to be. It's a truth to live by, and it's something to aim for. So it's not pressure to be perfect. It's a promise to claim that we are aiming to be like Jesus. 
And when we do this, when we, when we try to live and love as God does, Jesus says we will not only bless others, but others will turn and their eyes upon Jesus. And they will get to see the light that then leads them to Jesus himself. Sadly, I believe that one of the reasons why so many Australians don't like Christianity is because many Christians have not exemplified Christ's character. Church history is fraught with embarrassing and horrifying accounts of abuse and corruption. Last week, there was a state funeral service held for Uncle Jack Charles, a First Nations elder and a survivor of the stolen generation who passed away on the 13th of September this year. He was taken from his mother when he was just a baby and raised at the Salvation Army Boys' Home in Box Hill, where he was physically, verbally, and sexually abused. And he said, it wasn't just the abuse that traumatized me. The Box Hill Boys' Home stripped me of my aboriginality. You see, for many years, and in many places around the world, Christians have intentionally or even subconsciously imposed their own culture on others and stripping them of their local culture. And it's complicated because every culture has good and every culture has bad, right? There's no one perfect culture that is better than others, and and every culture has wonderful things that we can learn from each other. A lot of times what has happened in the past, and it still happens around the world, is that instead of uh, sharing Jesus in a holistic story of the Bible, people share their own cultured, uh, their own biases and own kind of culture, cultural versions of Christianity. And so uh, what happens is that entire people groups and generations get this mismatched Christianity that they then peace with their own culture. And what happens is called religious syncretism, which is when you have multiple beliefs and values that actually aren't compatible, but that are kind of smooshed together, and it leads to a great variety of practices and beliefs that in the end doesn't look a lot like the original Christianity. For example, many cultures value success. A desire to be wealthy and educated and influential is something that many cultures around the world highly value and pursue. And when people from those cultures become Christian, they carry into Christianity that value. And they may even rationalize it. The more money I have, the more I can give to God. Prosperity preachers suggest that God wants all his children to be healthy and wealthy. But when you go back to the Bible, the Bible does not say that the followers of Jesus will have carefree, comfortable lives. On the contrary, God's word says, that you will have to deny yourself, carry the cross, and follow him, that Christians will have to suffer. But many Christians view suffering as punishment from God, and they feel like they don't deserve it. So then they really wrestle with this, and this is leftover thinking from a cultural mindset of thinking that good things should happen to good people and bad things to bad people. And Jesus says, nope. I send the rain on the just and the unjust. We need to study the word of God without our bias and our presuppositions blinding us from seeing the truth of what God's word is actually saying. And that's why when we study the word, we pray for the Holy Spirit, right? To help us see and to be able to um, reveal to us our own, own biases, 
to show us what, what we have misaligned. And when we study the word of God, this is why we, we don't just read the Bible and read it on surface level. This is the reason why we use, um, we, we study the word and the history. We look at the context. We look at the etymology. We look at commentaries to understand the culture in which that passage was shared. To be able to get the universal truth that we then apply to our own culture. And this is also why it's so important that we listen to one another so that we can hear different perspectives, that we can be humble and stay open-minded instead of thinking that we have all the answers and that we have nothing else to learn. When we build our theology, our worldview, our church on the word of God rather than the tradition of our own culture, inclinations and interpretations, that's when the church becomes transformative and meaningful and relevant for the world. This is when we become salt of the earth and light of the world. Dr. Gailey Van Rienen said, without the ability to reflect theologically, the new church will almost always be a replica of the church in the sending culture, a transplanted rather than a contextualized church. It will be like a potted plant transferred to a new culture. It is expected to grow and reproduce exactly as it did in the original culture. A contextualized church is like planting God's seed in new soil and allowing the seed to grow naturally adapting to the language, thought process, the rituals of the new culture without losing its eternal meaning. These eternal meanings include a biblical perspective of God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, the church, humanity, time and eternity, and salvation. In other words, we cannot do church the way that it has always been done because the world has changed. We need a new language, new strategies, new ways to relate and connect to people around us that's based on the principles of the word of God and the example of Jesus and not tradition and not just what has been handed down to us. And at the same time, we cannot just be conformed to our culture with just a little bit of a Christian twist. Jesus lived completely according to the will of God and it was radically countercultural. The early Christians in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, were accused of turning the world upside down. But it was a kind of upside down that, yes, drew criticism and persecution, but also drew hundreds and thousands of people to want to join, even though that meant imprisonment, torture, or death. Because there was something so compelling about this new community and this new way of life that people from all different cultures and backgrounds wanted to, do, to be a part of it. Christians had something that was so unique and so attractive to people of all backgrounds that this movement called Christianity grew. Gary Birch in the NIV application commentary says, each of us needs to examine the character of the communities we serve and to build and test them against the vision for his church that Jesus offers in his final prayer. Above all, this means that the church will have a quality of life that so stands out from what is available in the world that the world takes notice, and the world yearns for it. The key is that the church is not a creation of God that offers frivolous or useless gifts to the world. This may be the case when the church has lost its identity and has become a byproduct of the culture in which it lives. But the true church of Christ offers the world a priceless gift, something it seeks desperately. When Christians are one with Christ and one with each other, the growth of the church is virtually inevitable. You see, despite Google 
And despite technology and despite the convenience and comforts that our culture provides us, there's something that people are still looking for. There's something that people are still desperate for. I have friends who are not Christian, who have on the surface, on paper, everything. Right? Great jobs, security, great families. Right? They have everything. But when I talk to them and when they share with me, there's still something that they're searching for. They're still looking for peace. They're still looking for purpose. They're still looking for worth and identity that isn't dependent on how they perform or how they how others think of them. Do we have this priceless gift of Jesus to offer to the world? Are we living it out in such a way that it brings people to us? Do you know who this is on the Aussie $20 note? This is Reverend John Flynn, who lived from 1880 to 1951. Growing up, he had opportunities to see the needs of inland Australia. So after graduating from Melbourne University in 1910 with a degree in divinity, he worked for the Australian Inland Mission as a pastor. But seeing the dire need for us inland Australians to have access to medical services, he worked tirelessly to establish the world's first aerial medical service, now known as the Royal Flying Doctor Service. He also used his photographs, statistics, maps and articles to publicize the needs of the people in inland Australia, especially for women, children, and aboriginals. He once said, if you start something worthwhile, nothing can stop it. What would Jesus do if he were here in Melbourne today? Who would he spend time with? Who would he challenge? Who would he make really upset? Who would he inspire? What kind of church would he establish? Who would follow him? Would you? What can we do to celebrate the best of culture and transform it with the light of Christ's example? What needs to change in us so that we can truly be the salt and light of the world? Like I said, I have more questions than answers because I think it's in the grappling and the wrestling with these questions as individuals and as a community, that we become kingdom people. I want to leave you with the final passage, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul, a first century uh, Christian missionary, said to the Romans who were new to Christianity, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see that Greek word for transformed is metamorpho, which is where we get the word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis is not just modification. It's when you become completely different. You take on a different form, right? It's the caterpillar versus the butterfly. And so when we become a Christian, we don't just modify or update one aspect of our lives. When we decide to follow Jesus, we are going all in and saying, yes, Jesus, make me a new creation.
a new creation that is able to shine your light to those around us so that we can bless our culture and also shine towards Jesus so that people will want to get to know him. It is my prayer that as we continue to study and understand the word of God as individuals and as a church, that we would be able to seek God's will together and and be able to understand it and know it and follow it so that we as a community can really impact Melbourne. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we live day in and day out, and we have choices and we have decisions and we have um, different priorities that are competing for our time and attention, I pray that you would draw us back to your Holy Spirit to help us to understand your truth, that your truth would set us free from the fears, from the patterns of self-indulgence, and that we would truly be able to live as your disciples in this world, as light, as salt, to transform and bless and embody you and your character so that others would get to know you that together as a community we would be able to really lift you up and experience the upside-down kingdom in our lives, Lord. We need wisdom to be able to do this. And Father, we pray especially for our church as we seek your will for the direction of our church in 2023 and beyond. We pray, Father God, that your Holy Spirit would give us unity as you prayed, unity in knowing what to do and, and unity in wanting to follow you. I pray in your Son's name. Amen.